Hello, and welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, Morgan. And my co-host, Christine. Well, what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about F-Droid, and we have two guests with us today. And I realize we did not talk in our planning session about how you guys want to be introduced on this podcast. Well, well, I guess I guess I'll just start off the introductions because actually, in a certain sense, Morgan is also a guest on this episode since all three of you have the expertise here, and I'm just um, I'm I'm just a community user of your fine software. Why don't we start off since Morgan's usually co-host and this time is kind of interviewee? Why don't we start off with Morgan and then we'll get to our two other guests? Morgan, uh, why are you an interviewee on this episode? Well, part of the reason we're doing this episode right now is because we just finished setting up an organization uh, behind the F-Droid project, including a board, and I am now officially the chair of the F-Droid board. Awesome. Congratulations. And um, let's, let's introduce our two guests. Let's start with Sylvia. Sylvia, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, I'm uh, Sylvia van Os. I uh, use she, her. I'm a Linux sysadmin by trade, and in my spare time, I like to help in the open source communities. I develop a few apps of my own as a hobby. I basically uh, joined Asteroid just because I really care about what it stands for, and I think it's an extremely important project. Very good. And Hans, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Hans Christoph Steiner. I think fundamentally I'm here because I, I am a free software activist. And, and what that has meant is that I have worked for a long time to try and spend um, all my time working on free software and uh, try to help as many people work on free software as well. And I came to Aftroid because I was working with the Guardian Project on privacy and free software in mobile. We saw, actually, I think it was actually Nathan, one of the, the founder of Guardian Project, who first said, hey, I found this thing, F-Droid. It's like, you know, free software for Android. And to me, it was just, a, at that point, just a given that I would A, be a U, and B, somehow get involved. On that note, we've, we've mentioned F-Droid several times, but we have not explained to our audience what F-Droid is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point, Sylvia, would you like to explain what F-Droid is to, the, to the, a listener of our show who may be interested but not familiar? In its simplest form, F-Droid is a, a repository of uh, free software apps. Think of on a Linux system or what many people call an app store nowadays. But it's actually also a lot more than that. Um, it's also a whole distribution system. It's an app to interact with those repositories. But I think for the person, for someone who's completely new to Asteroid, the thing I would tell them is that Asteroid is a way to get free software applications on your Android phone. You mentioned that there's a lot more components to it. And of course, there's always a lot of components that people don't see under the hood. For example, I install one thing called Asteroid on my computer. There is like a, a whole build system so each, to be able to get each one of those packages so that I'm able to download it, right? Like, because you don't, if I remember correctly, you don't just accept whatever binary upload that people give you. You actually, you actually make sure that you can compile it. Is that right? Um, yeah, that's true. Um, Asteroid builds... Uh... Pretty much everything straight from source code. And there are a lot of scripts to uh, ensure that every part of an app is actually free software to ensure it doesn't drag in um, closed source or proprietary dependencies. It's all just done to make sure that what users get is actually completely free software as people would expect and making sure we're building everything from source. And in some cases, with a recent introduction of reproducible builds, which kind of always existed in Asteroid, but we're rolling out more and more now. We're even able to nowadays create like bit for bit identical versions of, of apps that the developer publishes to give like also extra trust that what the developer publishes and what is the actual source code that that matches as well. So there's a lot of cool stuff happening there. Yeah, so I'm involved in Geeks, which is GUIX, which is along with, I think, Debian and Geeks. And I, I hadn't really thought about Asteroid. I guess they're all kind of pushing hard on the reproducibility side of things that we should, we should care about being able to 
make sure that the software that we are getting in terms of its binary output is is really the software as it is in source code form, um, that there's a one-on-one correspondence. So I actually didn't know that Afteroid was very active in, in doing that. I think that's really awesome. So what problem does Afteroid solve? Well, increasingly, as you know, technology has become more and more prevalent in everyone's lives, access to be able to change and modify that technology has become you know, increasingly more difficult to do. So the Afteroid solves the problem of how do we have all of the benefits of these mobile devices, which are tiny computers that we can carry everywhere, but still be able to use them ethically with free software options on them in a way that you don't necessarily have to be a free software developer in order to make it happen. And and actually, for the last 10 years, I think about... Every time we've gotten a new Android-y type device, the first thing we do, if we're not reflashing the device itself, and, and certainly if we are afterwards, is either we install something that already has Afteroid on it, or we install Afteroid on it so that we can start installing software from there. And, and it's always our preference to use uh, something that we can get from via Afteroid within our own household. So so yeah, that's pretty exciting. And I've been an, I, I've been using Afteroid longer than I've been a free software advocate even. That's true. I think that the first machine we installed Afteroid on was your your tablet that you got um, like over a decade ago. Is that right? For So yeah, then probably my first tablet. So tell me about the history of Afteroid. How did this project start? And, um, you know, kind of how did it grow into what it is today? I wasn't there at the very beginning, but I, <laughs> I followed it for a long time. Uh, the project was founded by Kieran Gutnicks. And hopefully I'm saying his name, doing his name justice, um, in 2010. And I think um, it was, uh, I think a lot of people then were, especially people who use free software, were excited by Android because it was open source, at least, you know, it was much, and, and back then the mobile ecosystem was so closed and so locked down, it was hard even just to develop your own apps. It came out of that, and um, it was really, I think, Kieran's, just he started it by himself because it was something he wanted uh, and it struck a chord. And, and, and I, for me, it was quite interesting to see because he quite quickly laid out some ideas that weren't around in other, that I at least was not familiar with from, in other free software distributions. And that is that software should also be reviewed for, for things that are not, necess- not necessarily related to free software is known as anti-features. So for example, uh, if an app tracks you, so it can be entirely free software and include tracking uh, or advertising. These are things that are not necessarily in the user's interest, uh, but under the standard of free software, say laid out by um, the Free Software Foundation, the four, the four user freedoms, that it, it does count as free software. From that, you know, it was something on the internet. Um, uh, some people got involved. There was, uh, I don't know if I, I Paul Falcon, or maybe it was his name, was somewhat an early contributor. And then um, Daniel Marti was very involved for many years. And it, there really isn't anything else like this on mobile phones, uh, where, you know, some someone say taking a free software distro like Debian and applying these core principles of operation to mobile apps. It's, it's, you could try to do something like run a PinePhone or uh, LibreM5 or something like that. And there, it is possible to run some uh, kind of more, let's say, GNU Linuxy flavors of um, operating systems with some mobile stuff. But, and I've tried doing that many times. And since the N900, um, have been tried to return to that. But I guess the N900 was the only device I ever had where I feel like that actually felt, you know, somewhat good. And since then, you know, there, for for whatever reason, the world of um, operating systems on on kind of what we think of as mobile devices has really been, if you... If you if you want what kind of feels like a polished experience, it's really only been either iOS, you know, which is completely proprietary, or um, you know, either Android or some community, you know, build of Android, and and that's kind of it. Yeah, I mean, to go on that point, though, you know, I was a user of Memo, which is like N 
I forget, eight, N810, I think it was called. But the same idea, they, these were modeled, were actually really built on top of kind of Debian tooling. But uh, as much as I like the Nokia Mamo devices and all that, they never set any kind of, kind of core principle as like, this is only free software. It was just like, oh, look, you're using Debian, and we'll throw in, you know, a lot of it was proprietary. There was no borders between what was proprietary and what was... Uh, free software. Not only that, year, years later, it turned out that the web browser that shipped on the N900 was actually man in the middling all TLS traffic. Um, <laughs> okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, a little bit scared when I read that one. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, that's a digression. But, but yes, you're right that like even having a GNU Linuxy type baseline doesn't mean that the system is actually like kind of really pushing for or aiming for kind of freedom oriented principles at the core, uh, which Afteroid certainly is. And I think you're right that it's very interesting to highlight that in Afteroid, when I'm going to install something, the you might not like this set of things is actually often highlighted. And that can be interesting because like I think the place where I most often see that is if I'm installing something like, uh, I don't know if Telegram's still on it, but at one point I installed Telegram back in the day and it was like, oh, you know, this is using a centralized service. So if, you, if you're not a fan of that, you might not be a fan of this, right? So yeah, yeah, I think it's it's good to kind of push the direction of user freedom. And it also allows you to set your comfort level for what you want it to be, right? Because you might be okay with using a centralized service. That might not be your primary concern, but it tells you just in case you're not. So, so tell me about some of the features of Afteroid. Uh, well, okay. So one of the main features of Afteroid, um, I kind of touched on that like um, earlier already, is the uh, repositories model. Um, by default, Afteroid has like the Afteroid.org repository pre-configured, but you can also add other repositories. For example, there are third-party repositories like the ISI repository that contains a lot of almost completely Libre software, just some proprietary dependencies here and there that are like not fit for the main Afteroid repository. Um, several Developers host their own repositories so you can get um, earlier updates for their app, like test versions and stuff like that. And it also kind of helps to prevent Afteroid from being like the sole arbiter. Because if we ever end up doing something that people don't like, people could just like run their own repositories. They're not dependent on us. And I think that's a really important thing uh, to preserve the freedom of free software to like try to limit the dependencies on certain people as much as possible. I think, yeah, and on, on adding to that, I think one of the things that we've also become known at, known for is, is a focus on privacy, um, which is not necessarily, you know, is also one of these things that, uh, it's, you know, it's, you're allowed to, to track people and invade people's privacy under the principles of free software, but <laughs> users don't want that. <laughs> and so we want to provide that because we, we are also all users of, it, of this. That makes sense. So the F-Droid project recently also has developed the F-Droid organization, right? We, we talked about that at the beginning of this episode in that you know, by mentioning that Morgan is you know, chair of the, the F-Droid board. So tell me more about that. What is the F-Droid organization? Why would you, I mean, if the project has been running, running for quite a long time without you know, this kind of organization in place, what's the motivation to do it now? Uh, what are the goals of having that organization? And uh, yeah, what kind of things are it tackling? So there are some things. It's just easier to have a uh, set structure in place to do things like trademark registration. Since Afteroid has a very broad community of contributors, there's not a single per there. Well, previously, there wasn't a single person or entity that could register trademark. And that has led to, you know, some offshoots of things that are not actually Afteroid, but are using Afteroid, the name and the branding to give different products. One of the things is to have an entity that we can do those things under, including a board that was appointed by the community. And I think all of us on the board are viewing this as a service role where we are here to serve the community and help kind of guide decisions in a way that we don't necessarily need the uh, long bike shedding community discussions for every single decision. 
but we can still take community input on those things. For the longest time after it ran, just, you know, it was technical people who say like, I want this and it should exist. And therefore, you know, if not me, then who? So people have just stepped up and, 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 and worked on it. Um, and, uh, you know, as it got bigger and bigger, I mean, I think, uh, I think all along people who contributed thought, okay, this, it would be great if, you know, this is something for everyone, you know, it was like, well, making something for everyone involves a lot of hard things that are out that we don't know anything about. <laughs> uh, what's, what's an example of that? Like, well, so like the legal process of getting a trademark, uh, we, you know, we, or managing donations. Like we started to get donations, you know, not really even asking for them. <laughs> and we're like, oh, cool. People want to support the project. This is great. But like none of us know how to run a campaign, how to do accounting, how to like handle, you know, <laughs> like this kind of stuff. So it was like, oh, you know, now we actually have money in the bank and we don't really know how to spend it in a way that we're comfortable with wait we need you know there needs to be people who do know this or do who do want to tackle this and um you know and it just seems also part of the progression of as a free software project community project like this kind of becomes like a um, infrastructure for so many people then it it needs to have its own entity uh, to me that's where it started with i know here in at one point started a uk-based company called Ftroid limited and and as donations were coming in, you have to have a legal home for them, and that's where it was run for there. But then I think he just ultimately found it to be too much and not something he he felt comfortable dealing with. And so then something like Commons Conservancy, uh, which is how we're incorporated, seemed to really fit how the after community was working. So, so just to be just to be clear on that, Commons Conservancy is an umbrella organization. It exists out of I think it's based in the EU. Is that right? Netherlands. In the Netherlands, yeah. I mean, so there are a few different of these kind of umbrella organizations. There's, you know, Software Freedom Conservancy. Uh, there's Commons Conservancy, not the same, even though they have similar names. And there's, to some degree, you could say the FSF being the fiscal sponsor of GNU is kind of like that. And um, there's also Software in the Public Interest and a, a few other things like that. So, so basically, you all made the decision to go with a fiscal sponsor type model. Uh, to be under an umbrella organization, uh, could you actually tell me? Is there it was what was the thinking behind that? Uh, why why do that instead of start your own organization? Well, part of that decision is that it's a lot harder to just start our own organization. This way, um, we have some of that background admin stuff is just already taken care of that we don't have to worry about. So that puts less stress on the board. Based on just a number of private conversations with a number of contributors, like I think a lot of us have been involved in startup and kind of business and felt a little bit, a little bit abused by the kind of business side of things. And you decided to not start a, a venture capitalist based <laughs> version of Asteroid? That's for sure. Uh, but also, so these kind of legal structures kind of felt very similar. And so a lot of us, a lot of, I, I don't know if I, you know, I can speak for myself for sure and other people that, you know, they were private conversations, so I won't, <laughs> won't name names, but uh, felt like very wary about doing some kind of legal thing like this where, and, and we wanted to make sure that this was like, that there's some principles here that cannot be violated, like these free software principles, like that someone can't like buy it out and then turn f into something else. And to me, that's what Commons Conservancy is basically this extra layer of like, yes, it's we have an entity, uh, we have our own board of F-Droid, uh, but then we have this extra layer in Commons Conservancy that like, well, you not only have to convince the board, but you also have to convince the Commons Conservancy and their structures if you're ever going to try to force it away from the core founding principles. And, and so that to me was a big attractive point of how we set up. That, that's an interesting point that I think isn't, really mentioned very often when talking about umbrella organizations that that they can provide that kind of layer of kind of already pre-baked values in some ways right you can do that yourself you know so sprightly has its own nonprofit we decided to go the route of creating our own nonprofit and we had to do a lot of that work of you know like what are the values of this organization how do we encode that in our founding documents and, and so on and so forth um, but it can be really helpful if somebody's already done that work. You know, it's kind of like um, 
I guess it's it's not quite the same, but you know, maybe kind of similar to well, we don't have to write our own license. You know, we we've got somebody's already done the work ahead of us, as in terms of thinking through what the implications of this are. Um, uh, yeah, so that's that's interesting. So, and and who else is on the board? So we've got a pretty solid board of heavy hitters in the free and open source software communities. Um, I myself am the chair. We have John Sullivan as the vice chair, Michael Downey as the treasurer, Andrew Lumen as clerk, and then we've also got Matthias Kirshner and Max Mail, who don't have official uh, roles on the board but are board members. So I feel like we've got a really solid group of people with a lot of um, really in-depth background in the free and open source software communities on our team. So um, earlier when talking about the board as serving a role as in terms of setting policies, um, I'm just I'm just kind of curious, are there are there ex- interesting examples of policies that are already being considered for the role to be involved, the board to be involved in? Or is that kind of something to be fleshed out later as the board kind of grows and evolves? So we're still pretty early on in having this board set up, but our first really in-depth project as a board or actually before we were technically a board, was to put together a really in-depth set of statutes and roles and regulations that establish kind of the baseline policies that the board will have moving forward. But I think it's important to, again, say that uh, most of the actual direction of the F-Droid project is still going to be continued through the F-Droid community. So uh, I'm going to hand this off to Sylvia. So one common thing with policy is that uh, there are also things where legal issues get involved. And that's pretty much when a board can be extremely helpful. For example, we're kind of still struggling a bit with like a good policy on dealing with uh, NSFW content. There are some people who kind of don't want it associated with after it at all. There are some others who think that it's good um, to have like free software apps for these things. Um, but that's also just the whole legal issues regarding like who can access it, the different laws in different countries. Just think of adult material or gambling related things. And it's the kind of thing that gets extremely complex. And those are the kind of legal issues where a board with legal expertise would be a great asset to have. And also having a board that is an entity that can hire a lawyer as opposed to a free software project where you you would have to have an individual uh, member of the team probably contact a lawyer. It's uh, full to have that as well. Exactly. So being of kind of facilitating things, I think in, in some ways, a lot of interesting pieces of software end up being about facilitation, you know, so we have facilitation being on, you know, kind of the organizational level. But in some ways, you know, software can encode facilitation itself. Um, so in, in, a, in a sense, Asteroid is kind of a, a piece of facilitation software for me, because when I install it, there's just a lot of things that I, I have to think about less. You know, I don't have to figure out how to compile all these things. I don't have to assess each one of these things. I can kind of rely on uh, that those skills and governance. So this came up as a topic of conversation in last night's community event, which, if I'm going to mention it, might as well plug that Boston Crafts hosts twice monthly uh, community events called Hack and Craft. So at our Hack and Craft last night, we were discussing the increasing difficulty in actually setting up free software on your devices, even if you are getting a device that is that is you know open hardware or intended to be FOSS compatible. Right. I'm um, actually last night I would. I was trying to do a little bit of an unusual setup with the way that I was installing Geeks on my new computer. And I was getting kind of frustrated and disappointed with myself for having difficulty setting things up in the way that I wanted. And thankfully, they do have an installer that was able to help me out because it used to be very easy. I used to know the whole process for doing like a manual installation of all these things when it was the old school master boot record installation of things. But now that we have like the EFI based installation things, I kind of always forget how to do that right and and so I, I got frustrated and i gave up on my own kind of customization thing and was kind of disparaging myself and and that kind of led you to jump in with some some comments and kind of kicked off some conversation internally 
Yeah, especially since, and Christine might not appreciate me saying this on the podcast, but I think by most people's standards, Christine is pretty clearly an expert on free and open source software. She's been working in free and open source software for over a decade. She has installed GNU Linux distributions on dozens of like personal computers and laptops and hundreds of, you know, servers. So the fact that Christine as an expert is having trouble with these things doesn't like it says something for how people who are not experts uh yeah, so it's been it's been helpful every time we've had a computer where we want to run an Android like thing, we can just install Android and you know I know that there was some discussion by Sylvia in terms of, you know, we what are the policies that should exist in there and you know, how do we deal with these types of things? But having an organization that's kind of done some of that work up front, it allows me to kind of worry and stress less. And I think that that's it's great that we have that on an Android like system. Because I I've I feel like that's been a real value and that I've I've felt like you know GNU Linux distributions conventionally have played for a really long time so it's good to see it here but I think actually that might tie in with something that's kind of interesting as in terms of a difference with Asteroid from other systems is that um, while Asteroid is a package manager it does not supply the underlying operating system, right? You know, like if you're installing Debian, it's doing both, right? And you can run stuff like Nix and Geeks as user-space package managers. But in general, a lot of what they're doing is really providing kind of the whole system for you. So so I was wondering if uh, any of you all had comments about um, kind of not providing the whole thing, you know, providing this layer of abstraction on top of a system that's kind of already pre-built. Well, personally, I would... I, I personally don't think it's actually that that much different from um, from like a GNU Linux distro because even there, like the the team that's working on the tooling for apt, for example, isn't necessarily the same team that's working on some of the other tooling. Um, and we've kind of just found like a team that can work well on the tooling for the package management part. Um, and there are other people who, who make like custom uh, Android ROMs, for example, who are really good at the operating system part. So I think in that way, it's all just parts that get combined, just like all the GNU stuff got combined with the Linux kernel into a functional system. Yeah, totally. Like so, like Lineage is the base system, and and you know, for one example, or Calyx OS, another one we we're, we work closely with, and then Asteroid is the apt is the package manager, but. I, there is the one, I, I think what, Christine, kind of what you're getting on is what what's weird about the Android ecosystem is that Android OS is this, you know, free open source operating system, but it's really, I mean, clearly, you know, majority controlled by Google. Um, because And uh, yes, it is, you know, the source code is all there, um, but it's like, you know, Google puts a lot of work into it and... Um, it is hard even to maintain a fork, you know, something like a, a, a fork like like lineage. It still takes quite a bit of work to keep up, and especially the way that uh, the Android develop, the uh, Google structures the Android development. They don't develop in public. They basically every release they kind of say, "Oh, here's the release," and they just throw the source code over the wall and then they go back and and to operating largely in you know largely in secret if you install something like calyx os or lineage for micro you have uh, the glue linux distro experience the, you know after it's built in and it just works and it's all integrated if you bought a phone that is a typical you know google android phone then you're installing Asteroid separately, and it then it has this weird dynamic of feeling kind of uh, uh, you know separate and, and 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 not very not integrated. Um, yeah, and then fortunately for most non-technical users, that's their user experience. But that does give us the benefit of having a uh, meet them where they are situation, because it would be really hard to convince someone who is not a free and open source software user in general to just flash their phone 
and start with a completely free software operating system on their phone. But saying, hey, if you download F-Droid, then you can, you know, just get specific apps that are free and open source software, but you don't necessarily have to give up all of the apps that you're used to. In, in fact, on our latest phones, um, Morgan and I specifically got some phones that we believed we would be able to reinstall the entire operating system, and we did not realize they are locked such that, and there's no current jailbreaking process so that, you know, we, we just can't replace the entire underlying operating system. So we kind of sighed and threw up our hands and, you know, put Asteroid on them, and, and we're at least able to have free software from that layer on up. But it was, you know... It was disappointing that we couldn't replace the base operating system. It felt at least like, you know, well, at least we can, for the, the main things we're using day to day, we're able to use free software from this layer on up. I think in general, the device manufacturers, so the hardware of cell phones, tend to be working either Android from the kind of like official, mostly produced by Google Sense or iOS with iPhones. And the device manufacturers in general do not care about whether or not you can modify your operating system. And in fact, a lot of times uh, those manufacturers are somewhat hostile towards changing your operating systems because the phones that we purchased were even unlocked phones, which historically have been you know, devices that you can change the operating systems on. But uh, there are procedures in place make that not always possible. Yeah, it turned out they were unlocked us in terms of the carrier, but not as in terms of the operating system, which was pretty frustrating. Um, well, I think that, I mean, that, that highlights the kind of the most important avenue, which is also one that takes time and is not very visible, and that is that working with hardware providers that do care, and there are starting to be some, Fairphone, a Netherlands-based one, I think they only really sell in Europe, did ship a version for a while with F-Droid uh, in it. Uh, they are also a small, <laughs> I think they didn't have the resources going after a while, um, but we still continue to talk to them. Um, and then there's another company, a small German company called Shift, Shift Phones, that is also, you know, we're working with them to ship a phone. You know, the idea is that you go to a store and buy the phone and it and it comes you know free software google free with f-droid built in and from these processes of talking to these manufacturers we've also learned about you know the hoops that google makes you makes these manufacturers uh jump through uh and um and that's part of actually what was blocking people blocking companies from shipping free software roms as as an option even so it's been Exciting to see this new uh, EU law called the Digital Markets Act, which is going to is aims to regulate exactly this. And I somehow found my way in in, in the European Commission event with you know Google and Apple VPs and all sorts of uh, yeah government regulators, and it was interesting to hear uh, be able to offer the free software uh, perspective on this, and it gave made me optimistic. But actually, it's, I think, coming pretty soon that we will be able to buy, you know, phones from this. Uh, Hans, earlier you mentioned that the way that you got involved was the Guardian project. Um, could, you, could you mention and explain a little bit more what the Guardian project is and the ways in which uh, that, you know, plays into Asteroid and maybe the ways in which it's maybe over-assumed to <laughs> play into Asteroid? Yeah, sure. Guardian Project did not start or found F-Droid, which is sometimes reported. Yeah, so what Guardian Project is, is we started, a, it, was, it was founded by Nathan Freitas. Uh, so in 2008, who had, he's worked in mobile technology since, uh, I mean, since the 90s. And he wanted to do something, you know, based on private phones. And, and also was inspired by the open source nature of uh, Android. Uh, we met through a mutual friend, and uh, there were some other you know, others involved. And, and actually, ironically, we started in 2009 kind of with the idea that we would be a startup because we were naively assuming that startups would want to fund an uncompromising a free software <laughs> smartphone that did not compromise on privacy. Um, I mean, this was pre-Snowden leak, so 
all of, we did actually talk to VCs even in, and all they they were like, oh, you're going to get very valuable data that you can sell, and we're like, that's exactly what we don't want to do. <laughs> but uh, we started, we we were in the right place at the right time, and um, the U.S. State Department had started this new effort that they call Internet Freedom, and they started funding lots of development focused on privacy. So you know, Tor is a famous example, and we got to make a living focusing on you know uncompromising privacy in, in mobile apps um and it's kind of run since then and for us you know with our free software base in in guardian project you know after it's a natural place to, to to be guardian project has this kind of structure of of getting you know we've been since 2008 we've been getting grants to write free software focused on privacy and run these grants and things like that. And so we've done that also for F-Droid projects. Um, and so when we can make a case to funders to say, you know, usually funding has come from this internet freedom perspective. So that means like uh, making sure that it can't be censored, making sure that it's strong privacy protections, things like that. Um, uh, we've tried to, you know, to get big chunks of development funding that can apply and you know, support F-Droid. Um, when possible, uh, and it's been, I guess the tricky part is the, you know, I think it's, it's very important that after it remain a, compu- a community controlled project. And so there, you know, money <laughs> can work that, uh, but money also means that people can make a living, you know, spend years of time working on things. And so that's actually, we were talking about the board. To me, that's something I think a board will play a key role in is saying, the board controls what can be called f and whatnot, and that gives oversight over, you know, when someone says, look, I just got some, someone just gave me a million bucks to do this with f that is a big counterweight to say, like, okay, but this has to actually improve f not just your grant goals. Right, right. Good. Um, one of the other things that I think is really important about having f is that Earlier, I think Sylvia was talking about how it's it's important that there's you know not just one sole arbiter of things, but one example of an app store that does have a sole app provider is Google with Google's Play, you know Google Play, and which is usually how if somebody is getting kind of stock Android or manufacturer uh, modified Android from their you know whatever the devices is that they're buying, they're usually installing things through the Google Play Store. And there is a pretty well-known uh, example a couple years ago where the Google Play Store ended up banning Matrix, their application element. Does anybody want to talk about that and you know maybe how that type of stuff plays in? Um, yeah, so the thing with Matrix, I believe that was because there was like one um, person spreading some nasty messages over the app and Google taking down the entire app instead of um, properly contacting uh, the Matrix team. Um, and that kind of shows like two issues. Um, at first, it shows the issue with like the sole arbiter thing again, uh, because like Google has so much power. Um, they can like pretty much shut down your entire business or community um, if, if you do anything they don't like or if something goes wrong. Um, and I think after it makes it an issue a bit less um, of an issue because we have like the ability to add like third party repositories. Um, however, we do also have like afterit.org as a main repository included by default, which means we do have to watch this a bit. And while we do have policies against hateful content, um, one thing I also noticed is that our review process is uh, a lot different. Um, for example, I have personally had cases where um, I have had app updates for my own app rejected on Google Play for not providing uh, login info, despite my app being fully offline. Um, and on the other hand, I see in the Android side, I see um, our contributors just sometimes like grabbing uh, tooling like netcard to check network connections to make sure the apps don't track, uh, sometimes even looking at bits of code. Um, 
I think the, the free software nature of the apps on F-Trade also allow for much more thorough and meaningful app reviews. Um, and we sometimes actually see people do this. And I think uh, our community is really strong uh, in that. And I'm really proud of how everything everyone uh, looks through stuff to make sure it's well reviewed. Um, and if they want to become a contributor to Afteroid, as in terms of the software itself, uh, how would how would they go about doing that? There, well, so there's a lot of different ways to get in to get involved, um, and more and more even ways for not less technical people to get involved. If you find the source code of an app that you want to see in Afteroid, we have our RFP, the Request for Packaging Issue Tracker, and you just need to put. You need to post the link to the source code in, in the issue tracker, and then we ask you know as much information as you can figure out. But most importantly is the link to the source code. And that starts the process of being of the app being reviewed and, and getting included into F-Droid. So just finding good apps and finding their finding that link to their source code is a key contribution. It starts the process. You can also review those. So we have something called IssueBot that just tries to automatically detect some things and post it into, as, a, as a comment in the issue. And you kind of just skim those. That probably, if you're non-technical, would probably look pretty intimidating. But if you are any kind of, if you've worked with software, any kind of software, I imagine it should be pretty easy to, to look at it. You don't necessarily have to have Android experience. Then one thing that's dear to me is some of these policies are really important and often require research. For example, this long NSFW not safe for work discussion, just having like the research of like, how do laws apply to internet community that's spread all over the world? Like where we didn't really know, know that. Uh, I don't think we still have a good sense of that. That would be a super valuable conversation because the the laws around things like images of naked adults vary really widely around the world. And even, you know, the countries that that our core contributors are based on, there's some pretty big differences. Um, Then the last, of course, is the classic. We're a free software project and all of it's free software. And we want developers to contribute as well. And there are lots of issues that are tagged help wanted. That's probably the best place to start. Sylvia, do you have anything to add to that? Um, yeah, I do want to uh, add that with getting your app on Afteroid, while the process may seem intimidating at first, I've, I've seen the community be extremely helpful in, in guiding developers through it, or core data contributors are pretty much always like right there. Um, and also help work with people to like figure out like what's proprietary dependencies they may have accidentally included in their app to help free that up. And often they'll also work with you to try to make your app built reproducibly if possible. So that way people could even update your app from outside of Afteroid. For example, if you want to send someone an update just for a test version or whatever, they should be able to update like right to to your test version of the app because if an app is built reproducibly, we can use their, that signature. So there's a lot of uh, possibilities. There's a lot of working together. Um, and while it seems very intimidating and complex at first, some of you may know that I have written a few apps in the past. I found getting them on Afteroid actually in some cases easier than publishing them to Google Play. So it's really not as bad as it seems. Um, it's scary at first, but it's... It's a nice, helpful community, and in general, I don't think most people should have much trouble with it. I think this is really great. As said, I'm a user of Afteroid. I'm not really involved in any of the development or any of that, but I do occasionally go through and read kind of the forum of issues, and one of the things that really does impress me is just how many people are involved there. But I'm, I'm really grateful that, you know, we have, well, three representatives of that community here on the call, you know, with Morgan and Hans and Sylvia all all, all talking here. So now I'm going to ask all three of you the usual question that we ask guests, including Morgan this time. What are you, what are you crafting? And that can include, uh, you know, kind of like handmade projects or artwork or anything, or even, you know, uh, hobby coding projects. 
But my main project currently is uh, Katima, which stands for Card and Ticket Manager, which is a loyalty card uh, other ticket app for uh, for Android, which is also available on Android. I started it because um, I was looking around like for for apps to store all this kind of stuff in. And the ones I used to find were just all extremely proprietary and so much tracking, and I just didn't want to deal with that. I found a small project on Afterit called Loyalty Card Keychain by Brandon Archer, who sadly at a certain point de- stopped, uh, he stopped developing this. And I decided to uh, fork the app in, uh, in after talking with the developer. And yeah, since then I'm accidentally an app developer now, so... Life works in mysterious ways. But for those interested, you can find Katima in Afteroid. So yeah, and otherwise I just look wherever else I can help with cool open source stuff when I have the time. Very cool. All right, what about you, Hans? So my thing, I, I live in a big city. I live in Vienna. Um, and that uh, has, well, at least where I live, it has a lot of street trees. And I don't know what the official word of them <laughs> In German, it's Baumscheibe. Um, and it's, I think it's tree pit in English and it's, uh, basically you have this area of dirt underneath a tree in, in the city and in my neighborhood, for whatever reason, the city, <laughs> at, there just seems to be a war on anything living in them. And I'm, and I'm trying to reverse that because there's just like wonderful pieces of dirt that could be beautiful plants and flowers. So the fun part of it is like actually getting down there digging. I actually go, when I go hiking in the, I'll just go off into the woods or something and I fi- see an interesting plant and I'll dig it out and pu- and move it to some of the tree pits. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so my, my goal, maybe it's a little different than most gardeners. I, I want a little piece of woods <laughs> right outside my door. Uh, so that's why I, I go to find the native plants and, and uh, stick them in. Also good for biodiversity in an urban environment too. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, I actually I built also um, window boxes and all because I live on like an upper floor, and it's been fascinating to see uh, now. And, and also, those little classic little things of holes drilled in them for like insect mm-hmm. houses. And now we have like a whole little like bee and um, ladybug uh, ecosystem where we've been able to like so with I, with my kids like we've seen like a couple generations because we could you could see like the little holes fill up with mud and then something comes out and then you see the different bees and the and ladybugs and my uh, sister-in-law is a um uh what do you call it the bug entomologist <laughs> yes uh, thank you i was gonna joke well i'm guessing you're not taking uh you're not you're not also like making spaces for the animals directly and stuff like that but then you jumped in directly with the way that you actually are so uh <laughs> yeah for uh, bugs yeah 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 so we did actually, we were able to identify where I learned what a baby ladybug looks like. Because I was like, what is this weird looking black thing? And my sister-in-law was like, that's a ladybug. Uh, I forget the term, but baby. And then we had ladybugs. And so it's, that's been quite cool to see, uh, yeah, actually a little ecosystem starting to form. Very cool. All right, and Morgan, what are you crafting? Anyone who's gone to Hack and Craft recently already knows this, but my big project since December has been making socks. So I, within the last few years, have developed an allergy to all synthetic fabrics, which is terrible because finding clothes with no synthetic fabrics in it is really difficult. And I've been able to find things that can work for most of my wardrobe, but like Finding commercially available socks that have no spandex or polyester or anything of that type in it is almost impossible. So in December, I taught myself how to make socks. I just finished my 12th pair of socks last week. Wow. Um, (laughs) Once I get get started on a new craft thing, I tend to hyperfixate. So I've now gotten to the point where I have enough socks that I've made that I can just wear socks that I won't have an allergic reaction to and I don't have to do a hand wash load of socks every couple of days so that's exciting I definitely appreciate that I'm a lover of wool socks <laughs> like the classic old yeah. ones. 
So this is like next level then. It's it's a lot easier than I thought it would be. I've pretty much been afraid of making socks for most of my life. Like I think there was an American Girl book where one of the plot lines is that they all started making socks for the troops and then realized that making socks is hard, so they gave up and they just all sewed their little patches of unfinished socks together into blankets instead. And I'm like, well, I'm never making socks because the American Girls can't do it, so... I guess I can't either, and my mom also made it sound really hard. So getting over that mental block uh, has actually been really good. Very good. Well, I think that's it. Thank you all for being on this show. It was wonderful having you all. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it was nice to be here. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate both of you being here. And Christine, thank you for being the interviewer on your own this time. (laughs) You know what? It was a lot of fun. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. All right. Thanks. Bye. 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 Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christine Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christine Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community on hash Foss and Crafts on irc.libera.chat. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash Foss and Crafts. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free. And stay crafty. Very good. And uh, not very good. Very good.